Welcome to episode 110 of the Star Trek Academy podcast. Today it's the Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks crossover episode, Those Old Scientists. I'm the Academy media professor, Michael Merrick. And I'm the Academy philosophy professor, Rodney Cup. So this is a remarkable crossover episode, and let's get right into it. First, a brief summary so people who are listening down the road a little bit can refresh their memories. And with that, here is Dr. Rodney Cup. All right, so we begin with the Cerritos <laughs> arriving at Cromoth B, and the Lower Deckers beam down to scan this portal that's been inactive for 120 years, but it's activated when Rutherford snaps a hollow picture of Boimler standing in front of it, and this portal sends Boimler 120 years into the past where he encounters Una, Spock, and La'an. And before they can send him back through, an Orion science vessel shows up and its crew discovers the portal and leaves the system with it. Now, Boimler shows them how to track the Orions and they agree to give the portal back in exchange for a shipment of grain meant for a colony on Setlik 2. Now, the portal has enough coronium for one trip, but it's spent when Mariner comes through the portal from the future. Believing that they are stuck in the past, Boimler and Mariner decide to contact the Orions, get the grain back, and deliver it to the colonists who need it, but they are stopped by a vigilant La'an before they can steal a shuttle. Now, at that point, Boimler remembers that the Enterprise contains a part of the NX-01's hull, which contains Heronium, and they charge the portal and finally send Boimler and Mariner back to the future. And there's a lot more to the episode than that, but we do our best to keep our summaries short just to refresh memory. So our main podcast mission is to talk about the philosophy and themes and morals to the story. But first we look at the production of the episode, like production design, continuity of the past Star Trek, and character development. And there's a whole lot of all of that in those old scientists, right, Rodney? Oh, a bunch. Bunches. Yeah. Now, this episode intentionally has so many Easter eggs and references to past Star Trek that I don't think it's worth trying to list all of them here in the podcast. In fact, we're not going to talk about that many of them. You will find plenty of such lists just all over the Internet. Uh, everyone you look at, it's writing about this uh, episode is enumerating them. I do have to say that writers Catherine Lynn and Ben Walkoff produced a really great script, uh, although I have a feeling they probably had a lot of research help from various folks. Lots and lots of Easter eggs. And I'm also not surprised that Jonathan Frakes was tapped to direct this episode. In my observation, he is often called in for the most important episodes. Well, he did a great job. And of course, and I don't know if these count as Easter eggs, but one thing I loved about the episode were all the meta references to this very crossover. So, for example, Boimler noticing how realistic Una, Spock, and La'an looked yeah. uh, before he lost consciousness. And he and Mariner also noticed how everyone in the past talks so slowly and quietly. And, of course, we've observed in Lower Decks how fast they talk. It, exactly. And it's those little touches that made the episode, among other things, so special for fans. Yeah. 
So without trying to list every Easter egg, here are some things that we want to call your attention to. Now, the opening credits of this episode are animated in the Lower deck style, not the regular Strange New World style. And they have a tribute to the Lower Decks credits. Rodney, did you notice the nacelle-sucking giant space yeah. bug? Right, right. That appeared in three different scenes, and apparently in the last of the three, Enterprise was successful in detaching it. Did you see the koala in the final yeah. scene of the credits, yeah. which is also a reference to Lower Decks? In the beginning of the episode, on the Cerritos, Una's poster is in the drawer by Boimler's bunk. And that was a point uh, in the episode that Una finds out that Boimler does have a poster of her. <laughs> and it turns out it's a recruiting poster, not a pinup poster. Right. But in that opening scene, he closes that drawer so fast that really all we see is a flash of yellow. But if you are very, very lucky and freeze frame it at just exactly the right moment, the full poster is there in that opening scene. Okay. I was a little uncomfortable with the idea of giving a time portal to the Orions, even to Orion scientists. And even if it's apparently depleted and isn't functional anymore. So why is that, Michael? Well, no more horonium apparently is to be found anywhere. And that's what it takes to power the time portal. Unless they find it somewhere, we hope that it's all completely de depleted. It obviously is kind of like the Guardian of Forever, but it doesn't talk. It does, however, seem to enact Boimler's wish to live in the Pike era. Yeah, I mean, it would be an incredible coincidence uh, that it would send Boimler back to that very moment. He um, was already talking about, yeah. Yeah, I mean, you wouldn't think the Orions would use this thing to travel about a thousand years into the future and, you know, run the entire quadrant after the berm, would you? Or they could go into the past and deposit $10 in a bank someplace and have trillions when they return to uh, their own time mm, you know okay um, who knows <laughs> i really like live action boimler he's not quite the same as in lower decks in lower decks he's really kind of a goof you know i but don't know he's pretty goofy here too well yeah but to me not quite so much now we need to remember that lower decks is more slapstick in its approach to humor even though it has some solid philosophical uh, and ethical themes to it and boimler has been maturing in that series so we'll see how he's doing when the next season premieres this fall but i did really like his character even in the context of kind of being the fanboy to me uh live action mariner in this episode really is the same in live action and in animation as in Lower Deck, she tends to minimize things that she actually really does like. Yeah, like the visit to the Starship History Museum, for example, is yeah. an example. And, and it, you mentioned Boimler being a fanboy. One of the fun things about this episode is that it turns out that some of the folks on the Enterprise are also fanboys, talking about Mayweather and uh, Hoshi Sato. In the Star Trek Enterprise era, that's, that's true. It was also really nice to see Mariner opening up to Uhura and even counseling Uhura. So that was a very nice tribute. Yeah. The talk about grain deliveries is to Setlik 2. But you may remember right. from Deep Space Nine, Setlik 3 will be the site of a terrible Cardassian attack on civilians. Miles O'Brien is known as the hero of Setlik 3 mm. because he led a successful raid on the Cardassian forces but he really deeply regretted what he had been forced by the Cardassians to do. It's interesting that Chapel says she does not assume 
that her relationship with Spock will last forever. And it's kind of hard to tell how she feels about that, almost like maybe that's okay with her. It's just something to try out. On the other hand, Spock smiling and his jokes in this episode are kind of a bit over the top. I really hope that he has scaled back his experimentation with being human by next episode. And it was a bit over the top because of the humor in the episode, yeah. certainly, or at least I hope. Another joke is that the crew doesn't look as Boimler configures the equipment to track the Orions. But of course, after he leaves, they could reverse engineer it, I suppose, couldn't they? Uh, yeah, I guess so. I mean, I, I would hope that Boimler would, would have undone it, <laughs> what he did, but they would probably have to remind him to do that. Uh, he's such a goof in this episode. Yeah, it could be. Um, it may well have happened off screen. Mm -hmm. Pike's ready room, and I've, I've been kind of noticing this over the last few episodes, but it really crystallized in my mind this episode. His ready room is used by a lot of other people. Mm -hmm. His desk is at one end. The conference table is in the middle, and the other end is where the sofas are. We see them used in a few other episodes, and it's where Ohura is working on her translation, those sofas at the far end from Pike's desk. It doesn't really make sense for her to be working there, but maybe it's just a convenient kind of catch-all set to use when people are, are spread out and relaxing. That is, it's a little odd. I mean, we didn't see people on the D using, you know, Picard's ready room like this, although it did give us an opportunity to see Boimler perform that Riker maneuver, right? On yeah. Pike's saddle. Which on the ready room, they said was an ad-libbed comment while they were filming. Oh, really? With Jonathan Frakes standing just a few feet away behind the camera. <laughs> That's great. The Orion captain in this episode always has an Orion woman or two right near him. They mm -hmm. don't have speaking roles, but they're there. And we remember from Star Trek Enterprise that Orion women use their pheromones to control Orion men. So in these scenes, the subtext is that even though it's the male captain talking, it's the women in the background who are really in control. They're the okay. bosses. Another thing I've noticed a couple of times, but is very clear in this episode, I really liked at the back of the engineering hull of the Enterprise, at the back of the shuttle bay, seeing red and green landing lights. In real-world aviation today, red and green lenses are used to tell a pilot who's landing whether the plane is above or below or right on its ideal glide path for landing. Oh. So seeing those colors really resonated with me with how aviation works today. Now, the those old scientists' enterprise also had red and green lights back there in the same location, but they're rarely, if ever, visible on screen. And I know because, as I have bragged before, Rodney, I've seen mm. the original filming model in the Smithsonian. Right. You know, I don't think I've ever uh, noticed those lights before. Interesting. I think, I think in the original series episodes, even maybe in the remastered versions, it's really hard to see. and I'm mm. not sure that they come through very well. But in the Strange New Worlds Enterprise, they've been very clear several times and probably the most clear in this episode because you see not just the back of the, the landing bay, kind of the little deck there, but into the landing bay. Yeah, you get to see the whole thing very clearly. Yeah. And finally, for this section of the podcast, I know that Haronium is essentially just a plot device to make powering the portal hard. But if it's such a rare element or substance, 
how could the relatively primitive Starfleet of Earth before the Federation in Jonathan Archer's time gather enough of it to incorporate it apparently fairly liberally into the yeah. NX-class ships? In the hull. Uh, yeah, that's a really good question. I mean, if we were to speculate, I, you know, maybe it was rare to begin with, and then the natural sources were just depleted in the early years of the Federation. Although, I mean, to say that the entire quadrant doesn't have any, I I think they maybe would have been better to say that, you know, the nearest source is like two weeks away at warp six or something. Yeah. And make yeah, it impractical I mean, that way. Uh, again, in a way it's nitpicking, but it's, it's looking at continuity and things and, mm -hmm. and the need for that element is a plot device and, and it worked well, you know, it's something yeah. that, the writers had to assert to make the plot work the way they wanted to. Finally, for this section of the podcast, I guess I said finally a minute ago, but this is the real finally, finally. <laughs> a couple of other things that I think others may have missed. There's a scene here where we finally get a really good close-up look of the model of the sailing ship in Pike's ready room. And there's a lot of conflicting information from naval historians out there about which ship named Enterprise, which sailing ship was the first USS Enterprise, meaning the first US government ship. Mm -hmm. This one viewed in Pike's Ready Room appears to be, as far as I can tell, an eight-gun schooner built in 1776, which was largely rebuilt from the parts of a Royal Navy sloop that had been captured. And therefore, this Enterprise that Pike has the model of was the first purposely built warship in the service of the American Continental Congress. And I think that's a cool one to have on display. Okay. The other thing I wanted to note is that, and it's a good message in this episode, Pelia says, someone she knew once said, I always pretended to be someone I wanted to be until finally I became that someone or he became me. That is not just something the writers made up to make their point. That is a quote from famous actor Cary Grant. <laughs> really? It's a real How quote from that? Cary Grant. Yeah. So Pelia knew Cary Grant before she appeared in The Princess Bride. How about that? And and Taxi. I, I didn't look at a date for when he said this. <laughs> um, you know, it, it may have been back more in the 50s or so. I, I don't know. But anyway, Cary Grant. The quote worked perfectly for the point the writers yeah. were trying to make. Yeah. And I thought it was nice that they didn't just have to make something up. Yeah. And if anybody's wondering, go see a classic film with Cary Grant in it. He's, he's a lot of fun to watch. But we can turn the page now, I guess, and talk about meaning now that that was the real finally. And what we're going to look at are messages the writers and producers might have wanted to convey to us, the viewers, and also what we might gather from this episode, even if it wasn't intended by those writers and producers. Rodney, I think that visiting the past is kind of what this script is all about, but it's not just a time travel story for the sake of a time travel story. I think it also serves as a metaphor. And in some of the plot threads, it's a metaphor for regret. Now, Mariner notes to Boimler that it can be tough to meet your heroes the implication being that they may not be as heroic as you expect. Mm -hmm. And I think that's an interesting point. But we also, for example, get Pike's really touching story about his father's death yeah. before they resolve their differences. And remember that in Discovery, Pike said that his father taught comparative religion 
and that there were often philosophical debates in his family. Right. That's and, good. Good memory there, Michael. Yeah, I'd forgotten and, about that. And Boimler's wisdom, which I really like from this guy, Brad Boimler, is that in regretting how Pike left things with his father, Pike should not deprive others of the chance to bond with him, particularly right. knowing or at least suspecting Pike's fate in years to come. And it's also kind of like the message Uhura got from Kirk last episode about not letting grief and loss win. And as you mm. pointed out uh, last time, Rodney, this is another episode written and filmed in the depths of the COVID pandemic, at least probably written before the vaccine was even out. And so I think this this idea of yeah visiting the past, but as a metaphor for regret, not doing things we would regret and not regretting things maybe that we're not able to change now. Yeah. So taking these two episodes together, we're being told not to forget lost loved ones, but also not to forget to live in the present. Yeah. 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 Well, I mean, I, I, maybe that's a good segue to my take here, Michael. I thought the episode was about the importance of living in the present and savoring the moment. So my evidence. <laughs> At first, uh, Boimler wants to live in the past, right? He, he envies the people who got to experience the golden age of exploration. But eventually, you know, he says, the past is strange, you know. And when it looks like they're not going to be able to find any heronium, he says that he's not going to worry about the future anymore, and that he's going to focus on making the present better, trying to deliver that grain shipment to Setlick too. First, he had talked about living off the grid so that there's no risk of contaminating the timeline. As you say, he gives that up and starts to be thinking about doing some things that are sort of heroic himself. Oh, right. That's a good point, right? He, he said that he one reason he joined Starfleet was to make history. And, you know, if they live off the grid, they're not going to be making any more history. And he decides, you know, forget the future. I'm going to help these folks. But if you think about it, Pike is also living in the past thinking about his dad, but Boimler convinces him to spend time with friends now while he still can, as you pointed out, you know, so instead of fishing by himself on Setlick 2, he has his birthday party with his Enterprise friends and gets wasted on Orion Delac, right? Yeah. Um, it's a weird coincidence for me, Michael, because I've been reading this book by Oliver Berkman lately called 4,000 Weeks, Time Management for Mortals. And the title comes from the fact that if you live to 80, that's all you get, about 4,000 weeks. And the usual approach to time management is based on this assumption that our time is unlimited, really, and that we can get everything done if we just figure out how to be more efficient. And this Berkman guy says, forget it. Surrender to your mortality. You know, instead of trying to get everything done, so that you can relax in some future moment, which doesn't even exist yet. Just resign yourself to mortality, recognize your finitude so that you can live in the present and experience it fully. And uh, it's a weird coincidence for me. It's a fascinating book, chock full of interesting ideas. And and though I haven't finished it, I, I think I can recommend it to folks. But that's I, I feel like that's maybe why I gathered what I did from this episode. Now, your note about relaxing in some future moment that doesn't exist reminds me, I've talked to a lot of people that say that after they retired, they got busier 
And maybe that's doing things yeah. other than just work, doing interesting or fun or volunteer service things. But uh, still, you're right that total relaxation may not exist. Mm -hmm. And it does relate well to this episode. It's also a central part of the script, Rodney, that not all Orions are pirates. But Pike and the right. others on the Enterprise assumed that they were. And I think in a way, that's a message about stereotypes. Stereotypes are almost always inaccurate, yet we see stereotypes just all the time in our world today. And usually the stereotypes are used to marginalize some mm -hmm. group. And it's a very Star Trek kind of message to not assume you know something about people when you don't really. When I was teaching intro speech, our textbooks called this perceptual sets meaning that you classify people into predetermined categories based on what are essentially superficial and imprecise evaluations. Mm -hmm. So basically the common term would be stereotypes. Yeah. And you mentioned marginalization. That's probably why Tendi is so uncomfortable with the stereotype because it's been used to marginalize her and she's had to fight against it to get taken seriously in Starfleet. Oh, and we've had some hints that maybe she was kind of a borderline pirate at some earlier point in her life, but she made the well, decision true. to leave that behind and accept Starfleet values. But the episode, really, if you think about it, is about two groups of scientists. You have the Starfleet folks on one side and the Orions on the other side interacting. And again, Rodney, last time you made the point about the importance of science in Starfleet, that it's not just about that Starfleet, I should say, it's not just about combat and mm -hmm. and firing weapons and shields and all that kind of thing. And this episode makes that point again. So I wonder if this two-episode theme is a dig at today's science deniers. I don't know, but wouldn't it be neat if it were? <laughs> uh, one more time, the writing and the filming during the worst of the pandemic, the writers have got to have had these questions of science and vaccine deniers and all that kind of thing in mind, even though that's not the story of this episode. Yeah, that's a good point. That's a good point. Let me mention this before I forget, though, Michael. I saw someone on Facebook remark that that scene between Mariner and Uhura seemed to be about imposter syndrome. And the idea here is that Uhura, she doesn't feel like she's done much of anything worth admiring at this point. And she's sitting there struggling with deciphering the script on this portal while Mariner is telling her how she's going to go down in history as this carefree, grade-A, super-translating space adventurer. So I thought I'd mention that since this commenter said that no one seems to be talking about it. So I thought we would. Well, it is a case of someone telling her who she's going to be, uh, supposed to be even, in the future. And I can sympathize, I guess, with Uhura for feeling like she's got a lot to live up to yeah. and yeah. maybe not much choice. And by the way, in the future, she's not a good translator. Watch Star Trek VI, The Undiscovered Country, for a, a humorous scene in which she can't translate even Klingon. Yeah, I seem to remember that from something that she... Klingon is difficult for her for some reason. By the way, I suspect, I still suspect that the producers are somehow going to change Pike's fate. It would really be a downer for the series finale of Strange New Worlds to just have Pike head off to this cadet training exercise, knowing what we do about what happened to him in the original series. Yeah. Can they do it in a way that doesn't change history? Can they save Pike? 
could he just go off to Talos IV on his own and history not be changed because he's no longer around? Can history be changed if the cadets live? That was the deal with the eugenics wars and Khan moving into the 21st century. They made the argument, which I wasn't too happy with, that because there was that war and then World War III a few years later, the long-term consequences to the timeline weren't really changed any, which is a theory that I'm not sure I like, but maybe they're going to do the same thing with Pike. They handle that accident in a way that Pike isn't paralyzed in the wheelchair, but that the consequences to the timeline aren't changed. I don't know how they could do that. I don't yeah. know if that's even their intention. I have a feeling, though, that maybe the producers are trying to come up with something Maybe they already know what they're going to do in that final episode. Maybe they do. Uh, you know, these writers, they're very creative, very clever, very good. Uh, like I said last time, I'm really enjoying the writing here. I, though we've talked about this, Michael, you know, back in episode three of this season, these changes to continuity, I think are very problematic. And I, you know, my initial reaction is please don't do that. <laughs> you know, we know what's going to happen to Pike. His, finitude makes the choices that he makes that much more meaningful and for him to escape his fate i don't know would somehow you know weaken that so i'd have to think about it a little bit i you know but i you know i i'd say leave well enough alone even though it's going to be a real downer and it's really awful well we have a few more years i mean after this season we know that there's another season and uh, so it may be a few years before we have to cope with or or mm -hmm. we have to find out what the producers yeah. have in mind for that scene. I mean, it, it could be a joyful scene of, you know, by then everybody knows what the deal is. And he voluntarily, willingly goes off to save the cadets. You know, we'll see. I wonder if some of this fiddling with the timeline is also setting the stage for what ultimately happens to Pike. Yeah. I, it wouldn't surprise me, given these uh, fairly dramatic changes they're making. But maybe we could shift off into uh, final thoughts at this point. I like the episode. Uh, and I think almost everybody. I haven't seen any mm -hmm. negative response to it. It was a dramatic episode. Uh, and we've kind of talked about it that way, rather than just talk about the humor. But it was overlaid with a lot of character development. A lot of Easter eggs and mostly, except for Spock's smile, mostly very <laughs> subtle humor. And it was a nice combination of the moods of the two series, Strange New Worlds and Lower Decks. I saw one person say that it's really more properly viewed as an extended Lower Decks episode than just a Strange New Worlds crossover. And I think you could look at it each way. You know, thinking about the episode as a whole and the arc of the plot, it felt like a Lower Decks episode. Um, something that we would see in Lower Decks. I thought it was a success. I mean, for me, this episode was so entertaining on a surface level that I found it more difficult than usual to analyze it, to be honest. Yeah. But I, I worked hard, and I, I do believe it works on a deeper level, you know, as I've noted. I'm very happy with this episode. Obviously, Star Trek has had visiting characters from other series in the past. I mean, notably Spock and Scotty in Next Generation. Q all over the map, mm -hmm. Thomas Riker in Deep Space Nine, several previous main characters or recurring characters uh, guest starred in Voyager. But I believe this is the first time in 30 years 
that regular characters from two series that were in production at the same time have crossed over. So a first in 30 years, I think. I do understand that the episode was originally planned to be just Boimler, but after they were working on it, they realized that Mariner simply had mm -hmm. to be part of it. There's no way she wouldn't rush to Boimler's rescue. She would just risk everything to save a friend. And from a story construction point of view, Boimler and Mariner are like two sides of the same coin. They are constructed as counterparts to play off each other. Uh, they contrast right. with each other, but they also, in a way, I'm not talking romantically, but they, as right. characters, they complete each other just as the way they function. In addition, it gives us a chance to remember how influential the character of Uhura has been all the way back to the 1960s and civil rights and black identity and just a highly qualified professional woman doing an excellent job. Right. And um, I guess we've come a long way in Star Trek. You know, you look at that bridge on strange new worlds and there's a lot of diversity there. Characters who are, you know, end up being whatever, you know, badass space explorers, war heroes, poster women for recruitment in Starfleet. Whereas in 1965, NBC thought the audience could not accept a female second in command. That's oh, right. Yeah. That's yep. right. Star Trek always reflects the mood in the country and social issues at the time of production, but also what the executives will let them get away with. That's right. Great episode, though. Yep. Very pleased with it. Well, I think that brings this episode to a close. So we want to thank you, as always, for joining us for our podcast. We'll be back next time for Strange New World Season 2, Episode 8. This one's called Under the Cloak of War. Sounds like things are getting serious. And that's going to be in its regular Thursday time slot this week. Those Old Scientists was a bonus episode between two regular Thursday episode drops. And that means we'll be back um, next Sunday yep. with our podcast. Now we're down to the final three episodes of the Strange New World season. Next time appears to be a Klingon story. The week after that is a musical. Which will be weird. Wow. We'll we'll see. We'll see. And then we'll have the season finale. Now, you can stay in touch with us on our social media feeds on Mastodon, Twitter, and Facebook at Trek underscore Academy and Tumblr at Trek Academy without the underscore. You can Google Star Trek Academy podcast and look for our Red Vulcan hand salute logo. And don't forget that you can subscribe via your podcast app to automatically get the new podcast downloads. Thank you for listening, and we'll see you again on the Star Trek Academy podcast.